This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited about uh, today's guest, and also, ex- I was just telling him, exceedingly guilty feeling because um, it's kind of outrageous that I haven't had him on here. Um, earlier given his uh the high regard and esteem with which he is held um at the american enterprise institute um i am talking about uh uh, uh fred kagan who's the director of the critical threats project at ai and um the sort of all-around military and defense guru in in my corner of the world um and it's a good week to have well it's a bad week to have him on but that's why we have him on. Uh, <laughs> Fred, welcome uh, to The Remnant. Thank, thank, thank you, Jonah. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so I don't even know where to start because this is, uh, <laughs> as, the, as the Talmud says, this is a fakakta time. Um, but uh, why don't we sort of, I feel like I'm less concerned about Taiwan right now because that's the, that's the looming problem and the, 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 uh, the, the critical threat problem right now is, is in fact Ukraine. So why don't we just start with your broad assessment of how things are going. And if you want to fold in the leak issue, I'll probably have follow-up questions about that, but take it where you want to go on that. So the basic situation in a nutshell is the Russians launched a big offensive over the winter, which almost everybody missed because it went absolutely nowhere. Uh, and this was having called up several hundred thousand reservists. They launched attacks all along the line in Luhansk. And that may have set a record, speaking as a military historian, that may have been the first time that a major prepared mechanized offensive did not penetrate the first prepared defensive positions of the adversary. Uh, that's not a record you want to hold, but that's the record the Russians held. Um, the Battle of Bakhmut was not the winter offensive. The Battle of Bakhmut was the secondary effort by uh, led by the Wagner Group, and they that has been grinding forward, and I do mean grinding in a way that has chewed up the Wagner Group um, 
in pursuit of an, a gain that is absolutely not operationally or strategically significant. Um, and that is, that is ongoing. Uh, pretty much all of the other Russian offensives have stopped or stalled, been defeated. And now pretty much everybody's waiting for the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which um, I think will likely start sometime in the next few weeks uh, at a location and time to be determined. Uh, so I'm happy to talk more about prospects for that and so forth, but that's basically where the war stands right now. Yeah. So let's 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 talk about Bakhmut for two seconds, because on the one hand, you know, and I'm a I'm a fanatical uh, listener to the the Telegraph's Ukraine podcast, and so I've been following on a daily basis the Bakhmut stuff. Um, and I read all of our stuff, and and it seems like the zeitgeist has kind of changed on this, whereas in the beginning when it was the quote unquote meat grinder and it was just the casualty ratio was so lopsided for the Russians that it was worth defending this strategically. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the zeitgeist was, was that or the conventional wisdom was that the, the, that Bakhmut was not strategically valuable, but the Russians were so desperate for even a symbolic victory somewhere, particularly Prigozhin, the head of this private military group, the Wagner group. Um, that the Ukrainians were perfectly happy to have them just march into the meat grinder um, for as long as they wanted. But now it really feels, particularly if you listen to what Zelensky says, it feels like there's a bit of a sunk cost fallacy on both sides that simply as a positional good, as the economists would say, because both sides want it so badly, it has now been elevated in strategic importance as a political matter far beyond its importance on the ground. Um, do you think that's fair? Do you actually think it has greater strategic importance than a lot of people are saying, or is it, is it just basically a political pawn or trophy at this point? Okay. So we can start with the things that are simple. What the Russians are doing is stupid. Um, and what the Russians are doing is pursuing a symbolic gain, uh, at cost that they can't afford to pay. And it makes no military sense what the Russians are currently engaged in. Um, it makes a certain degree of internal political sense, but it makes no military sense. So for the Russians, this is entirely a political, um, symbolic activity. Uh, for the Ukrainians, I've never accepted that view. The town itself is not of operational or strategic significance in that the Russians having secured it, they have not actually gained a significant battlefield advantage. But um, we've always had a sort of an oddness about the way that the critics of the Ukrainian defense of the city have phrased their discussion, because they usually have said, well, the city has no operational strategic significance, therefore the Ukrainians should not have fought hard to defend it. Okay, well, the thing is that the Russians had wound up for a big offensive operation there, and that offensive operation was going to land somewhere. And the Ukrainian, the Bakhmut was not the end point of the Russian intended offensive. Bakhmut was the starting point of a Russian intended offensive. So the Ukrainians were going to have to defend against that Russian offensive somewhere. And so the question then becomes, okay, do you think that there was a better location than Bakhmut at which the Ukrainians could have met that? And the answer is straightforwardly no. This has been this is demonstrated self-demonstratingly a fantastic position to be defending. And if you look at the ground behind Bakhmut, it's much harder to defend uh, and much less advantageous to the Ukrainians to defend it. So 
from the standpoint of meeting a Russian offensive that was intended to go far, it makes a lot of sense for the Ukrainians to have fought it here. Now, as for what now what is what is now going on, does it make sense for the Ukrainians to continue to defend it? Well, it's interesting. So the Wagner Group is being effectively destroyed as a usable military force. That's a global good. If you think about what Wagner has done around the world, and if you think about the depravity and evil of Brigozhin, um, this has also led to his fall from grace and influence in the Kremlin, which is a good thing. Uh, there are a lot of very good things and good reasons to want to destroy Wagner as much as possible. And so that is one thing. But the other thing is that the Russians have deployed airborne forces now on both flanks of the uh, city to allow Wagner to concentrate on taking the city. Okay, so that means that the Ukrainian defense has now pinned elements of a couple of Russian airborne regiments at this location. That's fantastic. So one of several things will happen. Either the Ukrainians will conduct a counteroffensive somewhere else, in which case those airborne units will not be available for the defense in those areas, and these are the best units the Russians have. Or the Ukrainians will counterattack around Bakhmut, in which case we can have a whole other conversation about the position they're setting themselves up for there. But under any conditions, if you ask the question, is the, are the Ukrainians in a more advantageous position if they continue to pin the Russian forces where they are, force the Russian, force Wagner through this meat grinder, which is wrecking it, and continue to pin Russian forces on this relatively meaningly fight, or pull back, let the Russians reconsolidate, let the Russians redeploy and think about where they want to do, give them more freedom of action. I think continuing to defend the city continues to make sense. Interesting. Okay. That's interesting. Um, let's, let's broaden out a little bit. Um, it seems like every day for the last five days, I can't remember when it started, we get another um, chunk of revelations out of these leaked documents. Um, um, there's a lot of dismaying aspects to it, and we still don't know the full scope of it. And we don't. There's a lot. There are a lot of questions to be asked, but with the exception of the seemingly photoshopped numbers of Russian casualties. Um, which was funny. I was watching some of the state TV and one of the experts on TV said, yeah, that's, that looks fake. And they came down on him like a ton of bricks. How dare you say Russians have lost more, you know, soldiers than the Ukrainians have. That's crazy talk, but they obviously have. Right. So, but with the, with the exception of that, the rest of it seems pretty authentic. And, um, um, what is most in the context of Ukraine? We can broaden it out to Taiwan and these other things in a bit. But in the context of Ukraine, what is most troubling to you about the revelations in these in these leaked documents? So, full disclosure, I haven't looked at the documents um, as a because I don't look at classified stuff, um, and I've I've followed mainly through the uh, reporting on them. Um, Obviously, you know, much has been made of the Ukrainian air defense weaknesses, and I think that that is alarming. Um, I hope and assume that actions were taken uh, between when those reports were made and now uh, to help strengthen and hasten the strengthening of Ukrainian air defenses. That's the most alarming uh, thing, because if the Russians can actually bring their air force into play 
over the Ukrainian skies to a greater extent. Uh, that allows them to offset their collapse of their artillery uh, capability um, and the loss that they're firing off of all of their precision missiles and stuff. Um, and in the worst case, if they can actually put bombers over Ukrainian cities, um, they, they can turn this into a World War II kind of, uh, or Syria, Aleppo kind of bombing campaign, uh, which I could well see them trying to do. Um, I don't think that, that will happen. Um, and I think that, I think it's likely that measures have, have been and are being taken to ensure that that doesn't happen. But that's been the most alarming stuff uh, that, uh, that I've been seeing coming out of this, just apart from the damage that this does, um, from, a, an espionage counter espionage perspective. And also a fraying of alliances issue, you know, which is a problem. Yeah, too. no, no. I mean, absolutely. It's look, I mean, on the one hand, I, it continue, it baffles me that people are surprised that allies spy on each other. Um, of course they do. I, I don't understand why anybody would think that they wouldn't. Um, and certainly if the U S is going to be providing assistance to a country like Ukraine, we're going to want to know a lot of stuff about Ukraine and we have intelligence organizations for that. So I, it's like, I'm shocked, shocked there's gambling going on in this casino, but it always does generate, um, embarrassment and pain and tension. And I'm sure that that was one of the intentions of whoever leaked this. Yeah. So it's, it's funny. There are, um, there's some counterintuitive things given where the sort of political conventional wisdom on the left and the right is about Ukraine that come out of this stuff. It seems to me on the right, we've heard nothing. We've heard an enormous amount about this, uh, lack of oversight, lack of accountability, just giving them a blank check, all this kind of stuff. And it turns out that we are monitoring them in granular detail. And if this stuff was being shifted to someone's you know bank account in Malta, we'd know about it that day if this stuff is true, right? And so it kind of undermines the rights talking point on that. It also undermines Biden's talking point that he is doing everything possible to support the Ukrainians because it seems like the biggest check on an actual blank check, which I, I as long as there's oversight, I have sort of no problem with, um, uh, you know, or at least you know close to a blank check, like. We'll, we'll, we'll post date it and tell you how many zeros you can put on it kind of thing. But, um, is that Biden is so afraid of, and for sometimes understandable, sometimes not understandable reasons of, of escalation that they're the ones stopping themselves from actually giving the Ukrainians what they need. And that's what comes across in this stuff as well. And so it's, it's a frustrating sort of revelation because the, and then there's the, the third part, which is sort of, uh, the complacency that a lot of people have. I know you don't, um, that the people are just kind of assuming that the war is going okay and that Ukraine's going to come out of it. Okay. There's a really non-trivial chance that Russian troops end up on the Polish border and we see mass slaughter in Ukraine. Um, maybe not this year, but possibly next year. If we don't turn the tide better than we are. So, okay, uh, three, I'm going to extract from, uh, pull myself out of the documents and just address the, the three big topics that you've, that you've raised here. The, the issue of um, blank checks and oversight and what we're giving to Ukraine, uh, the issue of self-deterrence by the Biden administration, um, and the issue of the, the war is not over. Let me, let me start with the last one. Um, 
the war's not over. And that means the outcome is not known. And we should have learned things from our own previous wars, including never turn your back on a war. It's not over till it's over. And by the way, even then, as Clausewitz says, in war, the result is never final. Um, things don't just end and stop once for all. So we need a long-term plan. And we need a plan to help Ukraine win in short term. And time is not on our side in many ways. Um, and that comes back to the Biden self-deterrence problem. Um, but then we need a long-term plan, which is going to have to be a plan for rearming Ukraine um, after it has won and making it sufficiently deterrent that the Russians won't get the idea under Putin or someone else in the coming years that they uh, it would be a good idea to try to avenge themselves for the defeat, uh, because that will be a strong tendency on the part of the Russians for generations. And we need to, we need to understand that. So the, on the one hand, this, the, the, there is a lack of short-term thinking that is good, but there is also a lack of long-term thinking, um, or of good long-term thinking here. And both of those are very problematic, but no, the war is not over. Um, and terrible things can still happen. By the way, leaving the Russians with anything like the territory they currently have would be a significant victory for the Russians and a massive defeat for the Ukrainians and for us. And the notion that somehow the current lines could be an okay ceasefire position is false to fact. They, they, they are not uh, for all kinds of reasons. So we have to help the Ukrainians regain almost all of their territory. Um, and I've, I've laid that out in, in detail uh, many, many months ago, exactly why each piece of terrain matters. But it actually, this isn't just the principle that the Ukrainians need to get back all their land, although that is an important principle. Um, but it is actually, I'm happy to go around and explain region by region why particular areas matter, but almost all of it really matters. So that's, that's one thing. The war is not over by any stretch of the imagination. We can still lose and the Ukrainians can still lose. Now, the Biden administration's self-deterrence is has been a problem all along. Um, we've been a day late in a weapon system short the entire time. Um, we've had constant talk of red lines, and none of them have been actual red lines. And there is a hyperbolized fear of Russian uh, escalation. For a long time, it was an absolutely nonsensical fear that the Russians might escalate conventionally by attacking NATO countries. Uh, that's been demonstrated. No one is even really talking about that anymore because it's so demonstrably silly. But it always was demonstrably silly. Um, and the fact that we used to be talking about that and now we have recognized that's silly should cause us to reflect on other things that we're very concerned about. Might Putin use nuclear weapons against NATO? No, no. Might he use them in Ukraine? Almost no. There are a limited circumstances in which I could imagine him doing that. But, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to credit uh, my wife, Kim, for this important observation that she made to me the other day, that, you know, um, countries fight wars to achieve war aims. And if before we have a conversation about uh, Russian nuclear weapons use, you first have, a, have to have a conversation about how that would or would not advance Putin's war aims. And when you have that conversation, it's actually pretty hard to make a case for how it would. 
So then you're into the realm of the irrational. And this is this is a whole other thing. And if you want to talk about it more, we can. But I don't have observed an enormous amount of evidence to suggest that Putin is the opposite of an irrational, apocalyptic thinker uh, who will burn the world rather than lose in Ukraine. Um, and I, I have not seen any evidence to suggest that that's true. And I haven't seen anyone advance any. Let me steel man that just a little bit because I hear it all the time. And I, I'm inclined to agree with you. I certainly think I agree with you about attacking NATO would be truly suicidal. I mean, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I kind of feel like Poland's army alone could now defeat Russia. And certainly all of NATO at this stage, if Ukraine is putting up the kind of fight that it is, the idea that NATO couldn't roll up Russia, not saying that should, because then you have all sorts of other scenarios that are bad. But um, uh, so I agree with you on that. And, and, I, I, and I'm open to the idea that the use of a tactical nuke in Ukraine is very, very ill-advised. I, I understand that like just doesn't work the way people think it works and what would be. But the counter argument that you hear is that it's uh, the psychological effect would be massive. And you can give me a rational argument about why it wouldn't have the intended psychological effect that some people think it would. Um, you know, I think it would probably result in massive internal Ukrainian symp sympathizer terrorism within Russia, you know, and all sorts of other things. But the, the, this idea that Putin is not a irrational actor, um, you know, people will say, this was not in his interest, this invasion of Ukraine. The, the, this expectation that it would take a few days was not in his interest, was, was not rational. Surrounding himself, particularly during the COVID period, has made him a bunker, you know, sort of delusional mentality, Hitler downfall video kind of guy. Um, his entire theory of the sort of this pan-Slavic theory that Ukrainians really aren't Ukrainians, they're Russians, and therefore we need to slaughter them on a mass scale is not a particularly coherent or rational argument. And the idea that he has any place to go, if like, it, it, that, first of all, his regime would collapse if he loses. That's a theory that people say he believes and that I think is at least superficially plausible. And that given that Putin has no actual moral reluctance to do profoundly evil things as a Hail Mary to stay in power, uh, counting on him to be a rational actor protecting the rational interests of the Russian state is quite a bet. So like, what is your response to all of that? Well, look, I mean, I could spend the next three hours going through various of those things in various different ways. Uh, look, briefly, the invasion was not irrational. It was wrong. It was stupid. That doesn't make it irrational. It was based on a misunderstanding of the situation. Okay, that that happens all the time. And that doesn't mean he's a crazy person. That just means that he had a wrong understanding of the situation that was fueled by the inner circle and the and the lies and stuff that they tell each other and all like that. But heck, uh, you know, it's a good thing that nothing like that's ever happened in the United States, right? Right, which must make us completely crazy, irrational people who would like use nuclear weapons instead of losing wars, right? Okay, I mean, so... Because this is, I mean, we need to remember, this is very far from being the first war that a nuclear power has fought. And it's not the first war that a nuclear power has fought and lost. So 
I'm not equating us with Putin, obviously. I'm not equating Putin with anybody else. But I am saying that this immediate leap to he's got nuclear weapons, he can't lose, therefore he's going to use nuclear weapons, that's a fine syllogism, but it actually doesn't hold. Um, so the invasion itself was not invasion. It was not irrational. It was just stupid. It was based on a misunderstanding of the situation. Okay, so now you could then have a conversation about is it likely that he would misunderstand the situation in Ukraine now currently such as to imagine that if he used a few nuclear weapons that that would cause ukraine to collapse or that would cause western support for ukraine to collapse he might and that these are the scenarios where i think you have the low probability that's why i didn't say there's no chance that he'll do it i think there's low chance that he'll do it in order for him to do it he i think he would need to be convinced that it would certainly end the war immediately in his favor because there is a very important point that people have made in various different ways, not all of them in my judgment quite correctly, about the importance of the Russian nuclear deterrent. The Russian nuclear deterrent at this point is existential, for, not only for Putin, but for Russia, because the conventional Russian military has been wrecked. I'm not sure the Poles could, could take them, but I'm not sure they couldn't. All right. That's a catastrophe for Russia, right? But it's been a long time that, since, that the only real reason why we all treat Russia like a great military power is because of its nuclear arsenal. Okay. From that perspective, one of the worst things that could happen to Russia would be the devaluing of that deterrent and the demonstration that Russia's use of its nuclear arsenal does not lead to decisive outcomes. That would be catastrophically bad for Putin. So, in order for him to run the risk of devaluing, the thing that Russia relies on to continue to be a great power in this world, he would have to be, I think, pretty confident that using them would lead to success. Now, I actually think it's very hard to make a case, even if you're in the Russian inner circle, that there should be any reason to be confident that that would work. Given the, what the Ukrainians have suffered, what the, Ukraine, what the Russians have brought to bear, how the Ukrainians have reacted every time, how the West has reacted every time, there again, look, they might be this delusional, but I think what we've generally seen is that actually Putin's understanding of the situation has moved more in touch with reality rather than less in touch with reality. What's my evidence for that? Okay, Putin, people say Putin can't accept defeat. Well, he has accepted defeat. They invaded to seize Kiev. They failed. He didn't nuke anything at that point. He accepted the defeat around Kyiv unequivocally and pulled back. The Ukrainians then imposed defeat on him in Kharkiv. Okay. He didn't escalate. He accepted the defeat and pulled back, prepared for a counteroffensive. They inflicted defeat on him in Kherson. He allowed his forces to retreat from the only provincial capital that he'd actually seized uh, since the uh, in this phase of the war. He didn't escalate. They prepared for a counteroffensive. These are actually all rational behavior. These are very rational reactions to battlefield setbacks. Now, you can argue about the degree to which it's still rational to be fighting for Bakhmut or various other things and so on, but those are, those are sort of tactical decisions. But the larger framing here of the way that he has responded to battlefield defeats and setbacks suggests that he is not operating the way Hitler operated. 
And this is a point that it look, I've made a little study of this because it has always fascinated me. There are times when you find uh, actual apocalyptic thinkers get at or close to or at positions of real power. This happened at the end of the First World War in Germany. A classic case was what where Ludendorff went at the end of that war and then after that war. And in really embracing this apocalyptic vision that Hitler ultimately then took to the full, but Hitler didn't originate that. That originated at the end of the First World War, actually earlier than that. And Hitler then took it to the full. And then you get to the Hitler apocalyptic, you know, if Hitler had had nukes, he would have ended the world rather than it was right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now you look at Putin. Is there any evidence that Putin is an apocalyptic thinker? Absolutely not. There's nothing in his ideology. There is nothing in his worldview. And there is nothing in his actions that suggests that he is prepared to embrace the apocalypse rather than be defeated. On the contrary, the core, one of the core things that has always been helpful to understand about Putin is that his sport of choice is a form of judo. And his view of himself, and we know this because it it's, runs all throughout the autobiography that he caused it to be written back in 2000. His view of himself is that he can be put down, he can be stepped on, he can be defeated, but he will always come back. And he will ultimately turn the enemy's strength against them. He is a survivor and he will respond. That's his view. It runs all throughout his actions. He accepts setbacks and then he moves on. So you would need to show that there is reason to think that his entire mentality has changed. And all I can say is all the evidence that I've seen is that it hasn't. So none of that makes any of this okay. But I need, I want to make one other point about the nuke thing. Let's imagine for a minute that I'm wrong because I'm wrong lots of times. And he is prepared to use nuclear weapon about this. What's the therefore clause for us? So does it follow that we need to surrender? Well, then we get to people saying, well, we can't take back Crimea because he'll use nukes then. Really? Now, now we get into the question of what, what is the basis of our confidence that we know the point at which he will use nuclear weapons? Because this is a this, because we should have no basis for having confidence in that. Um, we've already crossed all kinds of red lines that technically, according to Russian doctrine, would have justified the use of nuclear weapons. He hasn't done that. So this becomes an endlessly self-deterring argument that says any inch forward might be the inch. Okay, now take a step back from that. I've observed that nuclear powers have fought wars. This war, I believe, is unique in one respect. I believe that this is the first time that a nuclear power has launched a war of conquest and explicitly used the threat of nuclear weapons to advance that conquest. In previous wars between nuclear powers, first of all, I'm hard pressed to think of one that actually was intended as a war of conquest. But beyond that, the discussions in all of those previous wars have been about nuclear deterrence. The nuclear powers involved using their nuclear weapons to deter the use of nuclear weapons by the other side, or to de-escalate and stop the conflict, not to threaten to use nuclear weapons if they are not allowed to complete the conquest. We really need to have a hard think about the precedent we feel like setting in the face of this new use of a nuclear arsenal. Because now we will come to Taiwan and say, if we establish here 
that the threat of the use of nuclear weapons is sufficient to cause us to back down or surrender. Do we think that that Xi will not use that threat over Taiwan? Will we be more willing to risk nuclear war over Taiwan than we are over Ukraine? Do we, what lessons do we think the Iranians will draw from that? What lessons do we think lots of other people will draw from that? And one last point on the nukes thing, which keeps getting lost. If you like nuclear proliferation, you should be in favor of letting the Russians win in Ukraine. Because why are we having this war at all? We're having this war because Ukraine voluntarily gave up its nuclear arsenal in 1994 in exchange for a commitment from Russia not to do exactly what Russia has just done. And something of a commitment from us that we would provide security guarantees. Not security guarantees. Unfortunately, we gave them a worthless piece of paper. Right. But it, we did, look, we would have dishonored ourselves and to some extent had dishonored ourselves by not resisting the Russian invasion in 2014. Um, but we're laboring to make that good. And I, you know, I think we can give ourselves credit for that. Um, but we gave the Ukrainians nothing. The Russians gave them a guarantee, which they've just violated in exchange for the nukes, the Ukrainians giving back their nuclear arsenal. Again, we need to think about the long-term implications of surrendering or kowtowing to nuclear blackmail here. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof from grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life. Every mom loves an aura frame named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Um, You give me a great opportunity to segue into Taiwan and I'm going to reject it. Uh, <laughs> I got a couple more questions about, about Russia stuff. So I, I just wrote my LA times column about this. I, I, I couldn't get it in. There was just wasn't room to get into the detail for the full argument. And I may revisit it later, but it, it occurs to me, you know, I, I, I was nurtured on anti-communism 
my, my, and my dad was, uh, um, ABD, you know, all but dissertation in East European history. And so, you know, if you want to understanding what it was like to be six year old Jonah, imagine a little Jewish man pushing a kid on a swing, talking about how the Bla- Yugoslavian black hand was the first terrorist organization. That was my childhood. Awesome. <laughs> that sounds great. That's a great preparation for the world, I think. And, um, and it, 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 it dawned on me, um, or not dawn, but I've been thinking about this a bit lately that the, the, the thing about the Russian military um, I don't want to go all George Kennan, right? But, you know, there was a whole, like, there's more continuity between the czars and the Bolsheviks than there is discontinuity when it comes to strategic interests and all these kinds of things. And it occurs to me that when you look at the barbarism, you know, we, we're talking on Wednesday, there's this leaked video of a, of a beheading of a Ukrainian soldier. The reports of rape are horrendous. Um, my wife is working on a biography of her father who literally swam the Danube to escape the communists. And We've been talking all about the terrible things the Red Army did in Eastern Europe after the war, including raping probably 2 million uh, East European women, mostly Germans, but about 10, 10 to 40% of the Hungarian female population was raped by the Red Army, by the liberators. Um, and you can go down this list. It dawned on me that, the, that there is a sort of a ghost in the machine of the Russian industrial military industrial complex that is anti-modern, anti-humane in the sense that um, the practices and the cultural norms of the Russian way of war um, is barbaric. And you can follow, you can pull this thread back to the, you know, the the genocides in the Caucasus by Alexander II and and, and further back. And, And I'm just wondering what you think about it because we've been taught we've been hearing all our lives about how the red army is this modern army this with these modern tactics and these this this modern stuff and and then you see how they fight where the literally the pergosian soldiers the 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 wagner soldiers according to some of the reports the russian military refers to them as the disposables and there's no western army that can would you know would consider its own troops to be disposables and like, let's go find out where the machine gun nest is. So let's send the disposables in. And I'm, I'm just wondering, since you study warfare, am, am, am I far afield? Am I sort of on point, but missing important things? Is this army more degraded in morally than what the Russian army was 50 years ago? I mean, it, just it, tell me what you think about that. Okay. Uh, well, I love talking about this, so you'll have to stop me. Um, no problem. So um, I have big issues with Kennan because I think Kennan was, was was not a very good historian. Um, and uh, there were important breaks between the Tsarist uh, culture and the Soviet culture that I think he missed. Uh, first of all, I think he underplayed the importance of communist ideology, um, which led to a whole bunch of other bad things, including his opposition to NATO. Um, but beyond that, there there is something different about the Soviet experience that is important here. And the tragedy, I'll give you the bluff, the tragedy is that Russia passed from Yeltsin's hands to Putin's because unlike Yeltsin, Putin could not escape his Soviet upbringing. 
The thing that was peculiar about the Soviet Union was that even more than Tsarist Russia, and as a matter of policy, the Soviet state brutalized its citizens as a matter of intent. The purges were about in, were designed to instill random terror among the population. That was Stalin's purpose in deliberately killing people he knew to be innocent, was to make it clear that no one was safe. The Red Army practiced what you know, the the Dietovshina, the the deliberate ritual hazing, which involves huge amounts of male rape and other and other um, forms of degradation and brutalization. And that was institutionalized in the Red Army. It's institutionalized throughout Soviet culture. Russian, the Russian people, at least the Russian urban elite, had been escaping from that and emerging from that over the few decades after the fall of the Soviet Union. Putin never escaped really from that mindset. And he surrounded himself with people who didn't really break free from that mindset. And it turns out that the Russian army, for all of the discussion about professionalization and stuff, fundamentally never got itself away from that mindset either. So the issue here is that the brutalization of the Soviets has carried forward. And as the Russian leadership has found itself in a hard spot, it's reached for what it regards as grit, but which is in fact just brutality, thuggishness, viciousness, and criminality. For its own sake in some cases, right? I mean, it's... Well, yes, right. Self-justifying, you know. Yes. I mean, you, when you define toughness as brutality, and then you reach for grit in wartime, brutality is a positive attribute from your... This is why, you know, Prigozhin hands out sledgehammers to people. He laid a sledgehammer a silver sledgehammer at the grave of uh, Maxim Fomin, the mill blogger who was blown up um, in St. Petersburg because he executes people with sledgehammers, right? Um, that, that, that's a kind of deliberate thuggery. That's not a Russian thing in the sense that it's not like 19th century Russians were like that particularly. It was a thing that was inculcated by the Soviets, who venerated brutality because they equated brutality with toughness and grit. And that's what's going on uh, here. And it, but you're also, there are other factors that are very important. Discipline has collapsed in the Russian military. Professionalism has collapsed in the Russian military. Um, It's not clear to what extent it ever existed because it turns out that the one place in which Putin was successful in recreating the Soviet Union was in the Russian military. Uh, where it turns out that the mantra really was, as long as the bosses pretend to pay us, we'll pretend to fight. There's a great meme that from early in the war that I really enjoy of the uh, Fisher of Defense Minister uh, Sergei Shoigu uh, looking sad, and he's got a face that is, just always looks kind of sad and dour. And the meme says, when you uh, have been stealing half of the Russian defense budget and you discover that the chief of the general staff has been stealing the other half, um, the, the hollowing out of the Russian military was something that it was, it's clear that nobody really understood on that side. But it also means that the, the, the soldiers were not led properly. The officers were no good. But now they've been killed. And now you're dealing with mobilized personnel who are involuntarily mobilized, don't want to be there. Soldier, officers who've been killed, they're terrified, by the way. This is another thing that is very important for us to understand. 
the Ukrainians are so in their heads. The Russians are terrified of this upcoming counteroffensive. So when you are terrified, you are being forced to fight against your will. You're being brutalized by incompetent officers who don't know how to lead well. In a, in a stupid war where you're being given stupid orders that make no sense. And you are coming from a culture that venerates brutality at this point. Then you behave like this. I believe that the Russians are engaged in a deliberate project of ethnic cleansing and cultural genocide, and that that was the project from the outset. The aim of the war is fundamentally to extirpate the notion of a Ukrainian identity, because Putin rejects the notion that there can be such a thing. And as we looked at Bucha, and as we looked at all of the early war filtration things, and all of the things that the Russians, all of the atrocities the Russians were committing, what became clear to us very quickly was that they were systematic. They weren't acts of brutality. They were ordered. And as we've seen the deportation of Russian children, it was ordered. Putin knew about it. He's praised Uvova Bilyova for what she's doing. This isn't randomness. This is deliberate. So here we get into the problem that, and again, this is a place where it's not, it, it's not like what the Nazis did, where the, the death squads were separate squads that were distinct from their Wehrmacht and like that. The Russians had their own ground forces doing this stuff. Okay, well, so the problem with one of the many problems with committing war crimes, one of them is that it is absolutely destructive of discipline. Because if you allow soldiers to do what they will to, to civilians, they will not respect their officers either. So the Russian military actually was eroding its ability to function as a professional military in carrying out these ethnic cleansing, in my judgment, genocidal orders that they were given from the outset. And that has contributed and accelerated as well. Just going back to the this sort of ghost in the machine point, right? So like one of the, one of the arguments, again, it's bringing Coles to Newcastle to tell you about these arguments, but, um, you know, one of the, one of the points you often read about is that land empires have very different ethos than maritime empires, right? So British empire, extractive mercantilist, that kind of thing, uh, put in favored elites to run you know, India or wherever, same thing with the Spanish and Latin America. Um, but land empires, which are done not by ship, but by basically horse bank or tank, um, uh, they have to sort of uh, assimilate and, and, and absorb the populations that they conquer. And the Russians, going way back, Every time they extended their borders, they said, we need to extend our border to protect the, the motherland. But then when they extend the border, wherever that border was extended to becomes part of the motherland. So they have to extend the border again. And it becomes a self-perpetuating sort of prophecy. And so Ukraine, of course, Ukraine can't be Ukraine. It's got to be Russia. Um, and, um, and so the, the expatriation of children, the use of populations of, uh, as 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 bargaining chips, the sort of the mass expulsions of whole ethnic groups, um, that's you know, I'm just, I'm pushing back just sort of slightly. That does go back to the czars, right? That is a matter of sort of continuity 
in Russian doctrine. And so like a lot of like, you know, it's, whether it's Cicero, C.S. Lewis, the, the, the attributions all over the place, but you know, the principles are revealed at their testing points. And it seems like a lot of the stuff the Russian army is falling back on and the, that Putin is falling back on is, is really just a grab bag of sort of the worst, most evil practices because he's nostalgic for both czarist Russia and for the Soviet Union, which doctrinally should be a problem, but nostalgically it's not. It's, it's not a grab bag. This is an ideology. And part of the problem that we're having here is, uh, you know, I've, I and the ISW team that I oversee have been fighting this fight for years. Putin has been developing an ideology and a coherent ideology. There's been this whole, you know, he's just an opportunistic predator. He doesn't have strategy. It, that's never been true. He has been deliberately building an ideology. So it's not a grab bag. It's a construct. And it is a construct that harkens back to the Tsars. It actually harkens back, and this is the problem for the Ukrainians, it harkens back all the way to the Kievan Rus. And we should explain to people what it is, which is basically Russia sort of begins in Kiev, right? The, well, the, the, that's the argument. It's, it's, look, it's very complicated because actually, no, Russia begins in the north. Um, but Kiev becomes the most important city in, right, in the, in the collection of, of city-states and then territories that become Russia. And it becomes, it is the site of the conversion of the Russians to uh, Christianity. And so it's an incredibly important uh, city in the history of Russia. Um, and this is what, one of the reasons why Putin wants it. And, and sees it as inextricably Russian because of these connections. Now, there are Ukrainian scholars who have, and scholars of Ukraine who have made the excellent point that one you know, might equally talk about um, uh, sort of Ukrainian Moscow or something. Uh, the, 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 the Kievan Rus thing, if it started in Kiev, then it's, it's not the Rus thing, but that's a, that's a whole other story. But that, so it goes all the way back uh, there, the ideology that he's reaching for. And I will tell you one of the things that struck me. There are these little artifacts that as a historian I find fascinating. Um, in, his, in Putin's speech in 2000, in which he assumed the throne that Yeltsin handed to him, and this is Putin really sort of introducing himself to the Russian people as their new Tsar. He uses an expression. He says, our land is rich, but there is no order. Now, that is a fascinating turn of phrase because that is a turn of phrase that is taken from the primary chronicle, which is one of the oldest uh, chronicles of the earliest development of the Russian lands. And it tells the fictional story of how the Russians came to be Rus. Um, and the story goes that the, there were the Rus in northern uh, Russia, and they sent an emissary to the Vikings, to the Varangians. And the emissary said, our land is rich, but there is no order. Come to rule and reign over us. Now, it's a, it's a fictionalization of a, of a Varangian conquest, and it's pretending that the Russians had invited it. That phrase, if you say, when you say, our land is rich, but there is no order, and stop there. For anyone who is steeped in Russian history, the, the, it, the next part of the sentence, come to rule and reign over us, rings in your mind. This was Putin establishing himself as Ryorik, 
the the refounder of the dynasty. Okay, so that's one thing to have in mind. The other thing to have in mind is the the only ships in the Russian Navy that Putin cared about, which helps explain, among other things, why the Moskva uh, you know was so easily sunk, were are the Russian ballistic missile submarines. Those are the ones that Putin gave the kinds of names that we give to aircraft carriers. So, of course, needless to say, there is a Vladimir, you know, uh, submarine. Very strangely, uh, and this is what caught my attention, there is a submarine named Vladimir Monomach. Who the heck is Vladimir Monomach? He was a uh, Muscovite ruler, I think Muscovite, from the 12th century or something. Um, not particularly interesting, except that his name was Vladimir. And I, it, it persuaded me that Putin was simply going through Russian history trying to find every Vladimir he could to name things after. But one other one was fascinating. The Alexander III. Alexander III was in no way a distinguished Tsar. You really kind of, ha- he reigned at the end of the 19th century. You really have to know Russian history pretty well, even to know that there was an Alexander III. He was distinguished, though, for the massive and unusually brutal Russification effort. He was the one who fought to extirpate non-Russian languages in the Russian Empire. He was also the one who launched the most vicious and brutal pogroms against Jews in the Russian Empire, which was interesting. But I don't think that that's what's commended him to Putin. Putin has reached back to this ideology of what was called official nationalism, official nationality, that came from the 19th century, that is his touchstone, and that requires certain historical things to be true, including that Ukraine is Russia. So my point here, and thank you for bearing with me as I get all of this off my chest. No, I love this stuff. This is great. My point here is it's not a grab bag. It's an ideology. It is a constructed ideology that Putin has chosen a coherent line of thought of Slavophiles, of certain kinds of Russifiers through the end of the Tsarist period. And honestly, he's more interested in that than he is in the Soviet Union because he's not a communist and he he wasn't really a communist. So he's trying to rebuild this great Russian nationalism. But the great Russian nationalism he's trying to rebuild is one that can't be confined to the Russian Federation. And this has been his project since very early in his reign, was to regather the Russian lands. That's another phrase. He doesn't use that phrase, but that was a a phrase used much in Russian history, the gathering of the Russian lands, by which was meant exactly, as you say, having defined all of the Slavic peoples as Russians. There was a strain of thought that said that they therefore should all be Russia. Putin has been attempting to do that. That's what this project is in aid of. And this is the ideology that he has instilled in the Kremlin, and that will outlast him if his successor comes from anywhere within the current circle of people who share this ideology. But we have to understand this is an ideology. It is coherent. We know exactly what it is, and it has a strategy. The strategy is in the process of being defeated in Ukraine. It's incredibly important that we defeat that process and demonstrate to Putin and those around him that there will no, there will be no regathering of the Russian lands. That is not going to happen. Yeah. So I, I want to sort of cr- just very quickly correct. Sorry, I probably misspoke when I, when I call it a grab bag. I don't necessarily mean 
that there is no internal coherence to it. I mean, to me, it's very reminiscent of sort of the, the bin Laden, various European, you know, is sort of Islama, you know, uh, Islamic, um, extremist, uh, theories of the past, right? It's an ideology of the past where it's, it's, it's grabbing, it's like the drunk looking for the, his car keys where the light is good. It's grabbing the bits of the narrative, the chapters out of order, out of sequence in a way to construct what we're calling here an ideology. And, um, and frankly, it's, it, 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 I'm not trying to be, uh, make invidious comparisons, but there's a lot of this in sort of the domestic fever swamp, right? about American nationalism and um, trying to pick these moments and construct a useful past. And so I agree with you about that. And I'm having a abiding interest in both communism and also in fascism and, and where the Venn diagrams overlap. Putin has a bunch of ideologists. I've talked to Leon Aaron a little bit about this stuff. You know, the, the national Bolshevik, the, the nationalist Bolshevik movement was really kind of fascinating and sort of the Russian not Russian version is a little strong but it, you know national socialism and national Bolshevism have some interesting you know uh, uh, commonalities and 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 assumptions with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But okay, I mean, again, I could go deep in some of the weeds on this stuff because I, I, I find this stuff fascinating. But we should talk briefly about at least Taiwan, if you have a few more minutes to do this. I, 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 I certainly do. Um, and I, I, I want to make one more uh, very pedestrian point about uh, Ukraine before we leave that topic, setting aside this fascinating conversation. Thank you for letting me have because I love this stuff. Um, and yes, I fully agree with you. This is a constructed nationalism and a constructed nationalist narrative um, that Putin is, is selling. Um, and it's, it's a problem. Look, I wanted to come back to one last point on the issue of the aid that we're giving to Ukraine and the issue of the blank check, which is, um, there is one narrative that is going around, um, in the U S that is simply wrong, which is that we are shoveling tens or hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine. Most of what we are, most of the money that has been allocated is going to Americans because it is buying defense equipment that we are giving to the Ukrainians. So one can object on the grounds that one doesn't support Keynesian economics, and that's okay, and that's a different conversation. But you cannot look at the amounts of aid, the top lines, and say, we are giving that money to Ukraine because we are not. We are giving almost most of that money to Americans because of all the Buy American Acts, 
to purchase weapons and equipment and build weapons and equipment and then send it to Ukraine so that the Ukrainians can do with it what we might otherwise have had to do with it, by the way, because the point of that equipment was to be ready to defeat the Russians in an attack on NATO, and the Ukrainians are doing that for us. So there's we need to be clearer and get out a clearer message about the money we are, quote, giving Ukraine, um, even apart from your excellent points about all of the checks and uh, and so forth. Thanks. Um, all right, since we're, we're doing cleanup operation, I would make one last point about this nationalism stuff because <laughs> I'm obsessed with this stuff too. This, 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 this is form of uh, historiographical analysis or, ideal or political analysis that makes nationalism and socialism antipodal um, has always been deeply problematic to me. And, um, and when I'm talking about like the ghost in the machine of, of, of all this stuff, uh, it is worth at least remembering that Russian nationalism did not go away under communism and that, you know, it was not very long into the Bolsheviks reign in the 1920s when the rhetoric started becoming nationalistic. A lot of the sort of social conservatism stuff got, got being reintroduced. Max Eastman so wrote some wonderful stuff about how terrible it was that feminism was being erased <laughs> in, in the Soviet Union. And then by the time you get to World War II, that war is not fought as the Trotskyite war for global communism. That war is fought as the great patriotic war for Mother Russia. And, um, With the icons and everything. Well, all that stuff, right. And so... Um, you can, you can, you can create this sort of Epcot center view of communism where, you know, people show up for some world's fair and they see all the, the baubles that make it seem real, but it's a Potemkin vision. And you can also do the same thing with nationalism where, you know, you just take these little icons from the past and you shove them around. But the underlying ethos of the Russian people and of Russian culture, I think there's a lot more continuity there than uh, people realize I'm not going to let you end this here because I agree <laughs> with you. And I think th look, this, this is what, this is what Kennan missed. Okay. The reason why this happened is because Stalin won, right? We'd had this fight between Trotsky saying we need to focus on the international revolution and Stalin who says, no, we're going to build socialism in one country. The one country was Russia. And so Stalin, Stalin was the one who said, no, we're going to focus on rebuilding a state here, and the center of the state is Russia, even though it's technically a multi-ethnic empire. But he didn't discard communism. This is what Kennan got wrong. He merged communism with this kind of Russian nationalism and patriotism and found a way of making it work by talking about the Soviet Union rather than Russia, but in a way that allowed him to elide the fact that what he was fundamentally doing was rebuilding the Russian empire under a communist rubric. The comic, but the com this is, Kennan was wrong in imagining that the communism didn't matter. The communism also mattered. And this is your point. This, this attempt to create a, a easy dichotomy between these things is false to fact. That's not the way that it ever was. Right. Right. Now that, that, I, that, I think that's very well put. Okay. So um, you know, important for she, by the way, because very similar phenomenon there to help make that transition. No, I think that's right. And I think like, so let's, let's talk about she in Taiwan. I mean, it seems to me that one of the things that I, I get, I, I take a backseat to nobody in my anti-communism, right? I, I <laughs> communism bad uh, and, 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 um, but the rhetoric about 
G on the right so focuses, and, and, and of course, G, the communists, the, the, the Communist Party of China makes it easy because they call themselves the Communist Party of China. But it is fundamentally sort of an oligarchic nationalist kind of, of ideology. And it seems to me that Xi is turning his back on the market mechanisms that were introduced by Deng and that made China formidable in the first place. Um, and I, what I can't, and so I guess this is the question is, I can't tell which is chicken or which is egg. Is China becoming more nationalistic because um, the economy is sputtering out and they need to offer a distraction and a, a replacement ideology? Or is China turning its back on the market because it's embracing the nationalism? Is the nationalism, is, 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 it, is, this, a, is this a switch in strategies to deal with the sputtering of the Chinese economy? Or is the Chinese economy sputtering because the switch in ideologies. Okay, so um, you basically should you should really have Dan Blumenthal on um, to, I will. Yeah. To, to you know because he knows me. something about China. <laughs> I won't I won't stop you know that won't stop me from making observations about it. But I'm I'm very far from being a China expert. Um, the observation that I would make uh, from the work because I am working with Dan on a project on um, developing alternative strategies for coalition defense of Taiwan, uh, which has had me trying to read into this stuff. Um, first of all, I think that Xi's project is eliminating the oligarchic nature of China and restoring a Maoist kind of uh, one-man rule. And I think that that's actually the dominant factor here in the shifts that we're seeing, including his turning away from elements of the market economy. Um, I think the whole byplay with the various uh, Jack Ma and the, and the various other um, uh, conglomerates has been, I think she realized that they had amassed enough wealth and influence to be significant challenges to his rule and his attempt to reestablish one man rule and were a threat to him. And I think that that dynamic of his efforts to reestablish himself or establish himself as the current Mao is the larger driving factor than than either of these other issues. Is she a communist? Yes. Is she a Chinese nationalist? Yes. I think in very much the same way that Stalin was. Um, you can be both. And this is this has always been true. Um, so I think the communism is important. Um, it's communism with Chinese characteristics, though. And the Chinese characteristics denatured a lot of what the Soviets would have regarded as ideologically pure a long time ago. Um, but it's still communism, which means that it still has a global aim, and it still regards itself as in opposition to the capitalist world. Just to clarify on something, because I think this is an important distinction that there are very few podcasts where you'll get pushed back on this point. Is it communist or is it Leninist, right? Is it, is it, um, uh, is it about the avant-garde of the party and that, that he is, you know, yes, it's you, yes, you, sure. like communists it's, it's mean Leninist. a lot of different things to different people. No, 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 right? absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. The roots are Marxist Leninist and then Maoist. 
laid on top of that. But it is absolutely the Leninist rather than the Trotsky. Uh, it's the Leninist, honestly, through Stalin, rather than through the Trotskyite, let alone any of the other communist, you know, non-Leninist communist movements. So it's the vanguard, but it's also the Chinese characteristics is really important, right? It, like it the, is, which is another way of medicine and all that stuff. You know, yeah, yeah, yes, but I think also. It's always been also Stalinist in the sense of it's com it's communism in one country here also the one country being China, rather than you know the platform for the global revolution immediately, and so I think in that respect it's to me from again as a non-China expert but just looking from the outside it is Marxist Leninist Stalinist Maoist in its take fundamentally. Um, yeah, I, I get, I have a. This is probably worthy of a separate podcast, uh, a separate conversation. But um, I, I, I increasingly, I still think ideas are the most important thing. That small, committed ideological minorities drive the history of the planet, and that ideas have consequences and, and all of that. But I, I, I've been reading in the last ten years too much um, Italian elite theory, and. I'm sorry. <laughs> and um it's it's been a burden and I, I i and also just having lived through the transformations of the republican party and their conservative movement in the last half decade or so um i often f find that ideas are that the ideological stuff is pretextual to a certain extent and that I agree with you. I mean, like it's, it's, yeah, you gotta, as William James says, you have to think conceptually at some level. Otherwise the world is just a big bloom in confusion. So I, I, and I know where you're coming from when you say Stalinist, Leninist, you know, and, and Maoist with Chinese characteristics and stuff, but it feels to me, since I don't think there's a huge hard distinction between nationalism and communism, particularly in that intellectual tradition. Um, uh, authoritarian nationalism in the Chinese, in the modern Chinese tradition kind of captures it more than the Stalinist part. I mean, the St Stalin's ideology, any of his ideological commitments took a back seat to any point of a threat to his own power. Right. And no, um, no, no, uh, no, I'm not going to give you that because I, I, I have no desire uh, ever to look into Stalin's soul. Um, but no one can, you know, it'll look back <laughs> uh, and kill me. Yeah. Um, but w I, we look, you can't know how things actually relate to, uh, in people's minds. Okay. And this was, again, this was the, the crux of Kennan's problem and error in my judgment is that he thought that he could do that and say, look, it turns out coincidentally that everything that is in the interests of global communism is in the interests of Stalin. Therefore, Stalin, all this communism is BS and just cover for the fact that Stalin wants to do what Stalin wants to do. Okay, that could be true. But you know, in my experience of humans, it is perfectly possible that Stalin actually did believe that the best way to advance communism was to strengthen the Soviet Union, that the best way to strengthen the Soviet Union was to strengthen the party's control. But the best way to strengthen the party's control was to strengthen Stalin's own control because Stalin alone was the vanguard. And after all, that's inherent in the ideology. I agree with all that. I, so I definitely agree with all that. In yeah. terms of what is causing the action and what is pretextual and what is intentional, I, I'm, it's not clear to me that that's a useful conversation to have, actually. I mean, I'm happy to have it, but 
What is the therefore clause if you conclude that it's one thing or another? Yeah, okay, well, I'll, I'll take a stab at that. Um, I think the therefore clause is, I mean, I'll back off from the therefore clause. I think, so my point of view, I'm a big defender of ideology. In my second book, I wrote a lot about the history of ideology. The term actually comes from Napoleon, and um, actually it predates Napoleon. It was actually the study of ideas, and then it's Napoleon who turns it into this via Marx. Marx picks up on Napoleon's thing picks up on this idea that ideology is some sort of ensorcelment that forces people to do things that they don't want to do and all the rest, right? Um, and I'm, I'm very much in the camp that ideology is properly understood. It's just a checklist. It's a checklist of your principles. It's a, it's a heuristic. It's a, these are the questions I ask about a new event and, um, and see how it holds up, you know, and that kind of thing. It's, it doesn't, it's not a kind of solipsism that changes the reality that I see. It is a way to process and deal and respond to it to reality. So in that sense, I agree with you entirely that like Stalin's ideology mattered immensely because it shaped the kinds of choices that he made. But at the same time, his psychology mattered a lot. And the the seductive parts of the ideology, some parts of the ideology were going to be more seductive to him because of his psychology. And I just so the, it's sort of like my thing about nationalism and socialism not being, you know, uh, antipodal psychology and ideology are much more interrelated than people think. And this is one of my problems with foreign policy realists. You know, my, my working definition of a foreign policy realist is, a, is an ideologue who's lost an argument. And, um, uh, and so I think everyone's got ideas about how they filter and understand the world. And the best and analysts are the ones who under, admit their own priors. And they are they do a rigorous introspection about well what is is this what I want to see or is this what I'm actually seeing and all these kinds of things and I think ideology properly understood helps you do that. Um, but anyway, we're far afield. I know I've kept you too long. So very quickly, let's move to Taiwan. Um, is let me just I'm going to drop a hockey puck for you, and I know you can take it a bunch of different ways. But is uh, strategic ambiguity dead, and is that a good thing? Um, I don't know if it is dead, but it would be a good thing. Um, because if you're trying to deter somebody, then being ambiguous about your intentions is not a good, is not a good place to be. Um, I mean, we've, the president has made a number of dispositive statements that would seem to, uh, eliminate ambiguity in our policy. Our policy nevertheless remains formally ambiguous in various, very complicated ways. Um, this is parenthetically one of the reasons why I find so, so strange the arguments of those who want us to cut aid to Ukraine uh, and instead prepare to defend Taiwan and who present the defense of Taiwan as somehow more obvious and natural than the defense of Ukraine when the exact opposite is true in terms of our formal policies and the positions of both uh, countries in the world. But look, I think if, if we are in the business of defending, of trying to deter a Chinese attack on Taiwan, and I think we have to be in that business for our own interests, we need to be very clear to the Chinese that we will fight if they attempt to seize Taiwan by force. And I don't think we can be ambiguous about any of that. I, I just, you, ambigu ambiguousness and deterrence don't, don't go well together. So 
I think that we need to be uh, clear. Um, now, does it follow that we should recognize Taiwan? No, not necessarily. There's not an obvious set of actions that we should take. Um, but I'll tell you the action that I think we have to take. If we have actually decided that we will fight to defend Taiwan, which again, I think we need to be prepared to do. I think that's the right thing to do. We need to understand what that war would look like. And we need to like take it seriously because it'll be a big war because that's a war with China. And this is one of the things that as Dan and I have been looking at this problem, I'm finding that in certain parts of the expert community, there is seems to be this notion that somehow there's this limited engagement that is confined to the Taiwan Strait and the waters and airspace immediately around Taiwan, where we mix it up with the Chinese and maybe the Chinese attack our bases in Guam or they attack our bases in Japan, but somehow this all stays limited in some way. I'm sorry, I can hardly think of anything less likely. If the Chinese attack Guam, we're at war with China. And it's World War III. Now, World War III, by the way, doesn't mean nuclear exchange, which I think is extraordinarily unlikely. But it's World War III. It means we're at war with China. And I've had people say, well, how many Americans even know that Guam is part of the United States? To which my answer is, well, the day after China attacks, it will be 100%. How many Americans knew that Hawaii was part of the United States in 1941? Right? Which wasn't even a state. So, like Guam. So, I think we and have you know to... Who they, to make, put a fine point on that. You know who all Americans know are Americans? The troops at American bases in Guam. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. No, absolutely right. Um, and, you know, I could go on in various different ways about the, what this, what we should expect this war to look like, but this is a big war and it is not confined to the waters around Taiwan and it's not limited. So if we are serious as a nation about committing to the defense of Taiwan, which I think we need to be, then we have to be serious about preparing ourselves for a big war. The Ukraine war is serving as a useful um, red dye test of our defense industrial capacity. And we're not doing very well on that test. I'm distressed at the lack of general urgency that is being uh, addressed to the expansion of our military industrial base, which is essential. And I am distressed at this, at comments on, and I, I don't get into partisan politics, so I'm not, you, you know who I'm talking about, on comments by people, some of whom are portraying themselves as China hawks, some of whom are portraying themselves as isolationists, about how we need to cut defense spending and we need to get these defense spending under control and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm sorry. No. If we're going to be prepared for a big war with China, which is the logical requirement of committing to the defense of Taiwan, then we have to have the military that is capable of doing that, and we're not there yet. And we have to have a defense industrial base that is prepared to support a big war with China and not a short, sharp clash over Taiwan. And we're not remotely there yet. So I think one of the things that alarms me is that we're, we're still, I think there's less ambiguity in our position, but I think there's still a huge amount of fuzziness in our collective thinking. 
And we need to get clear as soon as we can. So uh, to close it out, because I know we've gone long, um, just if you can make a make the case as you see it, um, you don't have to make the best political case, just the, the best case, the best case as you see it um, for why it would be in our interest to defend Taiwan. Like what, what, what's at stake? Let's assume that they, and just because I don't think Americans want to die in large numbers to defend uh, really advanced uh, microchips. So let's assume that the Taiwanese, as Klan tells me, um, successfully blow up their microchip factories so that the Chinese can't get them. What is, what is the argument for um, Americans spending lots of blood and treasure on defending Taiwan? Okay, well, I'm less comfortable than than you are setting aside the microchip issue because, <laughs> it, you know, microchips are not a natural resource; they're an artificial resource. But states go to war all the time uh, to preserve access to essential resources, and the chips that TSMC uh, produces are an essential resource for us. So it's highly undesirable for there to come about a circumstance in which we no longer have access to them. Um, so I, I don't, I'll, I'll, I'll set it aside now, but I actually don't think that we should because people need to, under, pe- the, part of the problem is people think they don't want to die for microchips, but they don't understand what the implication of not having access to the, that resource actually is. And so there's an, there's an argument that needs to be made about why this really matters for the average American, but we'll, we'll leave that aside. Look, um, Dan and I have have called our project the Alternative Strategy of Coalition Defense of Taiwan because the discussion has become too narrowly focused on the defense of Taiwan. We want to focus on the coalition. Look, we have a mutual defense alliance with South Korea. We have a defensive alliance that commits us to the defense of Japan. Doesn't commit Japan to our, our defense, not mutual, but commits us to the defense of Japan. And we have alliances with Australia and um, New Zealand and so on. So first of all, we have legal obligations, treaty obligations to allies in the region. But why do we care about that? Okay, well, look, do you care about the prosperity and well-being of the American economy? Okay. Having China become the hegemon of East Asia be extraordinarily bad for us as, as an economic matter. Having it defeat the, the, or absorb or, or Finlandize the Japanese. I can't say Finlandize anymore. It's the Finland, Finns have, have <laughs> actually blowing that up for us. You can still say Quisling. You can still say Finlandized. It's historically rooted. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so on would be ex- very, very damaging to the average American. Okay. And, and people need to understand this. And the isolationism that, especially the far right, not just the far right, the right has been pushing that we're just a big island and we can be autarkic. We really need to make people understand that that's not true. They will be badly impacted by these things. Okay, but set that issue aside. From a pure geostrategic perspective, the task, we have we have a huge interest in defending our allies in East Asia. It is an unfortunate reality of geography that Taiwan sits between two key allies and the other key allies. Okay, it's between Japan and Korea, South Korea on the one hand, and our allies and the Philippines. We're working to reestablish that relationship and our allies in Oceania. Okay, if the Chinese take Taiwan by force or not, 
and can turn it into an aircraft carrier, an unsinkable air, aircraft carrier for them. Their, uh, our ability to develop a coherent strategy for defending the rest of our regional coalition is badly compromised. Their ability to continue to expand beyond Taiwan and push into other waters, push into the next island chain and so forth is materially enhanced. And there's every reason to think that they desire to do that. So our task of defending the states to which we have unequivocal defense commitments becomes enormously harder if the Chinese get Taiwan back. And so from a pure geostrategic standpoint, we are in a much more optimal position defending this coalition by defending Taiwan than we are ceding Taiwan and then having to think about how to defend the coalition against the next attack. Beyond that, ideas do matter. America, I think that American credibility in the world is teetering on a knife's edge. And I don't think that people fully understand what a world looks like in which our credibility is destroyed. Because I think on the one hand, there's, there's a notion among isolationists on both sides that the world can go to heck and who cares, we'll just live here happily and stuff, which is just not true. We, our economy is so interconnected with the global economy that consequences would be devastating. But the other problem that people need to recognize is whatever we say we are, we are the return address for our enemies. They seek to destroy us. They seek to cut our power down. They seek to attack us and undermine us and destroy us. They say this all the time. I'm a big believer in what my father used to call the higher naivete which is when somebody says something, your default should be to consider the possibility that they mean it. And when the Russians have said for decades that we are their enemy, I always thought that we might want to take that seriously. When the Iranians say that they want to destroy us, I think we want to take that seriously. When Xi Jinping says that he wants to destroy the unipolar world order, he wants to destroy the American-led world order, and recreate an order that is more appropriate for China, Americans and everybody else need to ask themselves questions. Do you want to have the rules of the world order set by Xi Jinping? Do you want to have the rules of international commerce set by Xi Jinping? Do you want to have the rules for everything from the use of AI and lethal weapons to data collection practices and all of that kind of stuff set by Xi Jinping? Or do you want it to be set by the United States? Because all of this stuff will matter a lot to people. And that is ultimately what is at stake here, because this isn't just about Taiwan. It's not just about Taiwan from Xi's perspective, and it's not just about Taiwan from our perspective. And we need to understand that the, what is at question here at the end of the day is is America going to continue to be the leader of the world? And I know there's lots of Americans who say that they don't even want to be the leader of the world. And to them, I would simply say, you really need to reflect hard on what the alternatives actually are. Because in some respects, the best case is a Hobbesian world of the war of all against all. And I mean war. There are worse cases than that in which 
the Chinese or some someone else establishes a greater degree of dominance and becomes leader in our place, which would be in many respects worse for us. That's a great answer. I got to say, it's I, it's kind of remarkable given how um, AI gets all of this grief for being the big democracy exporting people. You don't mention democracy, and I was just as I was trying to think when we were talking when you were when I was listening to you. When was the last time an actual real live democracy was conquered by an authoritarian? And absorbed into an authoritarian state or regime or empire. I mean, there's there's examples from World War II, um, uh, but I, I think this would be the first time in ne- nearly a century that we would. Act- I mean, Hong Kong wasn't military conquered, and it was a there was all sorts of legal issues there. But but this would actually be a, an actual democracy, flawed like all democracies are, of being crushed by an autocracy, and you know. That's something, I know you don't do the politics, but I think that's a point worth making before you get to the, the chips. I, I listen, I, I no, I, listen, I, I absolutely, I agree with you. I mean, I'm very comfortable making, in my judgment, when, if you make your, if you make sound actual realist arguments, not the arguments that, that of the realists as you have char- characterized them, and I love your definition, um, I'm equally comfortable making a realist argument for almost anything that I'm proposing and making an idealist argument for it. And I think that we should be wary of circumstances where you can't make equally cogent arguments in both cases. Okay. I do think that those should raise alarm bells and make us think hard about what's going on. But in the case of Ukraine, I can, I am, I can spend an hour going there full on idealism without talking about geostrategy or geopolitics at all. And I can give you an absolutely hardcore geopolitical explanation for it, that it makes no reference to the ideals or ideology and stuff. I think you can do the same thing for Taiwan. And that's one of the reasons why I think that the the answer to the question, should we be clearly committed to the defense of Taiwan is unambiguously yes. Okay. Fred Kagan, thank you so much for doing this. This was fun. I will have you back sooner. <laughs> um, love doing this stuff. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you, John. I really enjoyed it. Okay, so Fred Kagan has left the studio. And um, uh, as you can tell, uh, as I often have hard time concealing, when I get on a geek out subject that I really enjoy, um, it distracts me from the sort of more fundity kind of analysis and whatever. And I make no apologies for it. Um, I was just talking to Fred before he left uh, about how um, got to have him back on where we can just do the intellectual history stuff and not get distracted by all this grubby, weighty world affairs stuff. Um, uh, as I predicted, most listeners think I, I uh, was on the losing side of my debate or debate discussion, disagreement, whatever with uh sarah and that's fine i kind of felt it as i was talking and i'm thinking about maybe i'll at the right quickly because we have a mandatory fun event for dispatch for dispatch staff tonight um uh, i may write quickly uh more thoughts on the um sort of skokie and free speech stuff for the wednesday g file um thanks to everybody for the massive response to the um may 1st event um for the remnant uh with me steve and starwalt um pretty much 
book solid now. So, you know, the, the no need to RSVP now if you haven't already. Um, but we will be doing more events. And um, that's all I got. So uh, thanks for listening. And I will see you next time. Oh, you won't. This is a podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.